Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs. George Eliot, Middlemarch. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to a brand new episode of Speaking with Joy. I am your host, Joy Clarkson, and I'm speaking to you from a bright but chilly day in St. Andrews, Scotland, where I am finishing up my PhD in Theology and the Arts. I'm so excited to share today's episode with you all, where we will be exploring the beautiful story of a hidden life, about the life of Franz Jagerstatter, um, a resistor of the Nazis in Austria in the 40s. I decided to do this episode after viewing it and planning, I helped plan a screening and then a discussion of it with my friend here, Joel Mayward, who has some very interesting thoughts in the film, which I'll put a link to his blog um, in my show notes. Uh, but we worked together to plan a screening that was shown at the local theater and then a discussion of this film. And I was so very happy, it felt very fitting, um, that it was shown, uh, the theater chose of all days to show it, um, on Shrove Tuesday which of course is the day leading up to Ash Wednesday, which officially begins Lent, begins the season in the church of praying and fasting and preparing for the great celebration of Easter. And um, it's funny, I, I thought it was rather fitting because living in a world, I don't know where you live, maybe maybe where you live is, is more saturated with religiosity, but Scotland is a fairly secular place. And so Lent is kind of, when you see people fasting sweets or um, going to church more often or all these different things, it stands out as a very distinct thing in the culture here. Um, but it can also seem like a kind of useless thing, you know, in a world where it doesn't seem like um, religion is practiced as much, it can be kind of an odd thing. You'll think, what is the point of doing that? What is the point of dedicating specific times to prayer? What is the point of foregoing something that you love um, for no kind of earthly reason? Um, and so the reason that I thought that it was very fitting that we ended up screening the film on Shrove Tuesday, and of course, Shrove Tuesday, um, to shrive means to confess, and so it's the confession leading into Lent. The reason I thought it was so fitting for it to be shown on that day, that the theater picked that day to show it, was because really the question of why do we do things that are right even when there doesn't seem to be an earthly good that comes out of it? Why does it still matter to do those things? And that really boils down to the story behind this film, A Hidden Life. A Hidden Life is the story of Franz Jagerstatter, who was a conscientious objector who refused to um, say Hitler's oath of loyalty during World War II. But he wasn't Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He wasn't some political leader whose life made a huge difference. He was an Austrian farmer whose resistance ultimately ended in his death, which went largely unremarked upon until he was discovered, um, I think about 20 years after his death by a U.S. Um, historian. So his story, while beautiful and important, brings up this question 
of why does it matter to live faithfully in life, to resist evil, even when that resistance and that faithful living costs everything and doesn't seem to make a significant difference. And I think that's why Terence Malick chose this quote um, from George Eliot's Middlemarch, her beautiful uh, novel Middlemarch, to kind of characterize the story that he ends up telling about Franz Jager's daughter's life. Because this quote um, focuses on the idea that the, the growing good of the world is dependent on unhistoric acts. And I think in many ways, up until his story was discovered and told, Franz Jagerstadter's life was one that was a hidden life. People didn't know about it. It didn't make a big difference. At the time, he was just um, a small fruit crushed in the machine that was the Nazis. And even his church didn't really support him. So this is the story. This is the life that the film A Hidden Life looks at. And the question that it addresses is why does it matter to live faithfully, even if it costs everything and doesn't seem to make a difference? And that is the question that we will be exploring in today's episode. I also thought it might be useful um, for many of my listeners just to kind of have an artistic guide through this movie. It's what, um, it's, it's kind of a intellectual and artistic movie. And sometimes I always find that it helps to have someone kind of guide me through what makes this movie what it is. Why is he making certain choices? What can we look for and see and read that we might otherwise not notice if we didn't look closely? So I'm excited to dive into this episode today and share with you my thoughts, which I'm going to give you a little peek at the beginning um, of my opinions. I thought this was a deeply beautiful film. It was a deeply Christian film but it also left me with something to be desired. I had some kind of mixed feelings about the film, even though it was beautiful and the story that it depicts is deeply inspiring. So I wanna share that with you today. Um, the artistic and literary and philosophical things that the, the film is dealing with, the historical reality of Franz Jagerstadter's life and his brave decision, and also some of my mixed feelings about how the film um, maybe tried too much and too little at the same time. So that is what I will be looking at today. Now, before we dive in, I wanted to make a few announcements or rather really they're more reminders. I'm posting episodes every two weeks now, and that's partially just because I've slowed down as I get kind of to the, the final few hundred yards of my PhD. I need a bit more time, and so making episodes every week was a bit too much for me. So you can expect an episode every other week. And if you're interested in supporting me in my PhD journey, um, one way to do that would be to join my Patreon. I genuinely could not have both continued the p podcast and been able to do my PhD um, if it hadn't been for the support of so many of you um, on the Patreon. So that's a way for people to support the, the podcast and also kind of get a little bit of more of a, a peek into my life as I finish this PhD. Every month I post playlists and um, kind of newsletters and updates. And one of my favorite things I do is I post um, my favorite book lists of the things I've been reading that month. Um, so if you're interested in helping me make it through this final leg of the, of the, of the PhD, um, you can go check out my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Joy Clarkson. A final request is that if you enjoy this episode, um, go leave a rating and a review on iTunes as that helps other people find the podcast who might like it. So without further ado, let's dive into The Hidden Life. Now, before I dive into The Hidden Life as a film itself, it kind of helps to have an introduction into the person who made it, which is Terrence Malick. Now, 
If you are an arty theological person, I have a feeling you will know all about him. But just in case you don't, um, I thought I would give you a quick biography which may have something for everyone to learn. Terence Malick, who wrote and directed this film, is an interesting filmmaker. He makes films that are long and beautiful and something that's unique um, for him is they're deeply theological and excellently made. Um, I think that he's kind of a paragon in the eyes of many very artsy Christians because he somehow manages to make art which is both deeply Christian and also very excellent, which is sometimes more rare than, um, than I wish it would be. Um, Terence Malick is an interesting figure as well because he didn't study film, he studied philosophy. So he actually got his undergraduate from Harvard, um, and then after finishing his undergraduate, he went as a Rhodes Scholar to do postgraduate work on Heidegger, who of course is one of the most important philosophers of the 20th century, who was very interested in questions of time and of being and of death. Um, also, interestingly, of course, Heidegger lived during the Nazi era and did not have an entirely clean slate in that regard. So I think it's interesting to see him returning to the philosophy that he wrestled with in the time period of the philosopher who wrestled with it. Um, Terence Malick is, again, uh, notable not only as a filmmaker, but he's notable because he translated Heidegger's essence, The Essence of Reasons, um, into English, and that was published, I believe, through Harvard's um, press. So he had a, a kind of thick philosophical background. Um, but then in the 80s, I believe it was, he made his first uh, kind of film that was really overshadowed. It was, an, it was also a 1940s film. It, it focused, it was called The Thin Red Line. And um, the thing that's interesting about it, though, is even though it's very lauded by film critics, it was, it was overlooked because it was a 1940s film that came out on the same day as Saving Private Ryan. Um, he then took a break for about 20 years, disappeared, and then for the last about 15 years has been coming out with a barrage of films. My friend Joel the other night said that it seems like Malick has something in him that he feels this kind of need to get across. And so ever since about 15 years ago, he has been making film after film after film. And his films are very distinct. Um, one of the things that's distinct about them is they tend to be dealing with very philosophical themes, um, but also distinctly theological themes. It's interesting, um, Malik himself seems to be, he's very, very private, um, but it seems that he is Anglican or Episcopalian. Um, uh, the actor Martin Sheen, who you may know if you've seen The West Wing, um, who also starred in A Thin Red Line, credits Malik for actually bringing him back to faith. So he said that while they were filming for A Thin Red Line, Malik, uh, and at the time, uh, Sheen was something of a lapsed Catholic. Malik challenged him to read The Brothers Karamazov, and they had all these conversations about it, and Sheen credits him for having kind of rekindled his faith um, and his Christianity. So Malik has a real theological and philosophical bent. But, and I'm borrowing a phrase again here from uh, my friend Joel, but I think this is very true. Malik's films are not just theological or philosophical, they are poetic. And what I mean by that is they don't merely intend to get a story across or even um, get an idea across or a conviction across. They intend to do something to the viewer. They're intended to bring about an affective state, an orientation in the world. They make you feel things. 
And because of that, even as he is dealing with these theological and philosophical themes, he does it in intensely visual and auditory ways. Um, he's, he's very famous. I think probably the kind of film you could think of with this, and actually I've already done a podcast. It was one of the very first podcasts I did. I think it was my first proper episode. I talked about the film, um, The Tree of Life. I keep on wanting to get there, get that confused with The Hidden Life because they're both life titles. But A Tree of Life, which is kind of this Job narrative, and it's totally saturated in these beautiful scenes. He's an amazing cameraman uh, of water and light. And um, it's really asking this question of how can God allow bad things to happen, but that God still exists and is still good. So it's a beautiful film, but he uses these images. Uh, and then also he's, as we'll see in this film as well, he, he loves to use music in a very intentional way to bring something about in, in the viewer. He doesn't just want you to know something or think something. He wants you to experience something in his films. And that's a really key part of how he makes movies. So while Malik has always been very Christian in his outlook, um, I've only seen, to own up to this, uh, a few of his films, and a hit, um, Tree of Life is definitely my favorite. Um, while he's always been very Christian, people were really excited about this film because it seemed to be his most Christian. Uh, the trailer for this film has, has Franz saying, if God has given us free will, then we are responsible for what we do and what we fail to do, which is this quotation actually from, from the confession of course, the Catholic Confession. And and so people have been very excited about this film, asking how will he take um, this theme of being faithful to to God and, and to our conscience and do it in the way that is typically poetic. So having given you a little introduction into Malik, I'm now going to kind of give you a crash course through what, what happens in the film, and then we'll dive into some of the images and the music and, and the methods that he uses to bring about this experience for us, which ultimately I will argue is intended to be a passion narrative. So it's supposed to imitate the narrative of Christ approaching the cross, which I think actually brings about some problems, um, but we'll see those as we come to them. Now, I hope you all, if you really don't want plot spoilers, then don't listen to this episode, but this really isn't a movie um, that is really about its plot, because if you googled Franz Jagerstadter, you would find out that he was, here's the plot twist, spoiler, don't listen if you don't want to hear it, he was beheaded for refusing to serve for Hitler. So that is kind of the place that you know this story is going from the very beginning, which is what made the opening scene so powerful to me. It opens with this quote, his voice, um, voicing over, he says, I thought we could build our nest high up in a tree fly away like birds into the mountains. And he voices this, um, and as you hear him voicing this, you are seeing Nazi propaganda. You're seeing the troops taking over Vienna and um, Hitler going around and, and talking to people. What, um, and this, this opening sequence was really deeply kind of moving and almost upsetting to me because it was almost like it acknowledged at the beginning what was coming in the end. And it showed kind of the heartbreak of, of good people who want to live good lives. And that's not a bad thing. All throughout the movie, he says, God wants us to be happy, to be whole. Um, but that even our good and whole lives, sometimes we are required to face up to evil. But there was this kind of aching sadness from the very beginning of the film, of knowing that these were people who were as good as you can humanly get. 
as simple and as kind and as loving. And um, evil still knocked at their door, and we still have to reckon with that. So it begins with that, and then almost as if it is um, a depiction of the, the nest high in the mountain, high in the tree that he's trying to describe after this Nazi propaganda, it goes in and shows their very good life um, that is in the very tippy tops of the Austrian Alps, which to me is kind of a picture of that quote. He is quite literally, he has done all that he can to build, build a nest in, in the heights of the mountain. And it begins by showing their very simple, very beautiful life. They live in a village. They have three beautiful children. They're deeply in love. One of the things I loved about the way that it portrayed their their relationship, there's a very kind of Malikian, um, by which I mean Malik's way of depicting relationships, which is that they don't talk very much, but they're very playful. And that's the thing that I liked. I thought, you know, normal people do actually talk more than this. <laughs> that's something I always think in Malik's films. Like, people do talk in real life more than this, but I loved how playful they were. Um, and they have this very good, beautiful life, which is as close to the nest in, um, in the tree uh, as one could humanly get. But then, as the kind of juxtaposition between that opening phrase about the nest in the tree and the pro Nazi propaganda foreboded for us, we begin to see this, this lovely life kind of undone um, by, this, by this seed of ugliness, by this, this sickness that grows and grows until it encompasses all of their life. And it begins, you see this along this way, Franz is presented with many opportunities, many small choices to either go along with what's happening in Germany and in Austria or to resist it. It begins with the mayor of the town, when he's a bit tipsy, beginning to say all these kind of negative, terrible things about Jews. Um, and all the other men laugh it off, uh, but Franz is uncomfortable and he leaves. And then it comes to um, taking up a collection for the war effort, and you can tell that Franz is not comfortable with this, and so he resists. So at one point he's, he's drafted, and... Um, and he goes for his training, and you see him watch all of these propaganda films, and you see him start to be visibly upset. He begins to realize what's really happening on the other side, and this is maybe not a just war, not something to be a part of. And slowly but surely, he's continually confronted with these questions, and then he knows that ultimately he will be asked to sign an oath of loyalty to Hitler. And the moment comes, and everyone else makes the oath, and he does not, and he's immediately arrested. And then we follow the film, basically, uh, over the months of his arrest, his riding back and forth to, to Franny, his wife. And then we begin to see kind of more Franny's side of it, which is while he's in jail, she's continually kind of ousted and mistreated uh, by the villagers who see her husband as a traitor and a coward. So he's continually, uh, she's kind of both under the strain of having to keep their farm running and having three daughters, all while also being actively persecuted by their little village. Uh, which then begins to kind of bring you this question of, was their secret, sweet little life, um, there was always kind of this hidden sin beneath it, if this could come out so quickly and so easily. Um, one of the things that I think the, the show depicts really well is how kind of hidden seeds of sin can blossom and take over an entire area because it begins with this really idyllic, beautiful place, right? But you begin to see so quickly how if you let hatred for people who are somehow different than you grow in your heart, in your community, it is no light thing. It quickly becomes a festering wound 
and leads to violence, um, violence to others and a violence to society and a violence to your own community eventually. And I think that that's a good thing to remember because it's easy for us to say, how could anything like that ever happen to such a terrible, you know, how, how, how did Nazis get to do what they had to do? Um, when at the end of the day, they, Nazis were very civilized, so to speak. They listened to good music and they read good books and they went home to their children at night. But there was this this cruelty, this unaddressed hatred um, that can quickly manifest itself. And it showed that in a really frightening and powerful way that made me um, indeed want to shrive, want to confess, and want to make sure that none of that was in my own heart, in our own times. But something else I thought was really interesting that the film did was it used time. And as I said, this is something that Malik is interested in. He's done a lot of work with Heidegger, who, who thinks a lot about time. But the main way that it used time, I thought, was it is a very long movie. It is quite literally almost exactly three hours long. It's like two hours and 54 minutes, I think. And I didn't feel the length of it until about halfway through, maybe. And then it just feels extremely long and um, plodding. But I think this is actually, when you think about it in this poetic sense, what is it trying to do to you as a viewer? What it's trying to do is, is, show, is, is show this that it's easy for us to think of making the bold decision to resist Hitler. But what it shows is that he made that bold decision, and then it was about four months between that and then going to prison and then doing this and then doing that and then waiting and thinking he'd have his sentence commuted and then not, and then finally dying. And so it showed that, you know, we like to tell these kind of quickly moving, clear-cut stories of hero, but heroes, but it showed that sometimes we make big decisions and then we are faced with monotony and boredom and confusion about if what we've chosen is the right thing. And as a viewer, it really let you sit into that heaviness and that, that length and that waiting with him. Um, so I thought that was really interesting of the use of time and boredom. So now that you kind of have the general arc of the film um, and what it entails, the story it's telling, let me dive a little bit deeper into kind of some of the artistic things I think he's doing. Now, we'll talk about this in a minute, um, but to me it was obvious that he was not just doing a biopic. He was not trying to just tell the story of Franz and Franny. And, and if he was, he would have included some things which he very notably did not, which we will talk about in a moment. Um, and so the question then in my mind was, well, what is he trying to do? What, what story is he trying to tell? And I think at the end of the day, the story that A Hidden Life was meaning to tell was a um, passion narrative. And this was first pointed out to me by my friend Wade um, for a reason that I will disclose momentarily. But the first way we can kind of see this, so a passion narrative is, it's generally thought of as the story of Christ approaching the cross, his, his, um, his crucifixion, and then eventually his resurrection. And how are ways we can see this film as kind of being um, an invocation of Christ's of seeing as Franz's journey as Christ's journey. The first thing that I noticed is how how often it appeals to parables. So throughout the film, Franny and, and Franz, who are of course farmers, live out in these really beautiful visual ways, the parables that Jesus tells. So at one point you see them um, kind of like shifting out the, ch the chaff and the wheat, as you see in those kind of terrifying parables of Jesus about um, those who will who will be in the kingdom and those who will not. Other places you see Franz sowing the seed, 
Um, at other places, you see him quite literally being a shepherd. There's all of this imagery, which is naturally given to it because Jesus told these very pastoral, agricultural parables. And of course, our heroes and heroine in this story um, are, in fact, uh, pastoral people. They are farmers. So that was one thing I noticed, and that was also pointed out in a review of The Hidden Life um, by a Twitter friend, um, Joshua Heaven. So thank you for noting that, Joshua. So that was one thing, one thing that kind of invoked the Gospels, but it got much more explicit than that. To me, the point when I really realized this was meant to be a passion narrative was in this scene where an artist who paints the church is talking to Franz, and Franz is helping him. And um, he's talking about how he paints a comfortable Christ, is what he says. The artist is kind of complaining of his own, um, his own weakness, that he paints the comfortable Christ who requires their sympathy but doesn't require anything of them. And he says, but the, the life of Christ has a demand, and perhaps someday I will be brave enough to paint the demanding Christ. And then the, the camera, right as he says this, very obviously swoops to a full face of, of our hero, of Franz. And so to me, that was, that was kind of this very quick indication of, guess who the, the picture of the demanding Christ is? It's Franz, who's going to give up his life um, for the sake of doing the right thing in the face of the Nazis. So that's kind of this indication of we're meant to identify Franz with, with Jesus. But then this goes on and on and is emphasized both in the images and then also in the music. So you have the artist scene, but then you have when he's taken on the train um, to go to prison in Berlin, you have the opening to the box St. Matthew Passion play, which is this beautiful chorale in which it says, come daughters, help me lament. And it's the opening of the box St. Matthew Passion, which is in fact a passion and is kind of the invitation to the listener uh, to enter into this sorrowful event. So that's the very beginning of him going to prison. So we're indicated in that way that he is, he is the Christ figure going to his death. Then you have these, um, again, with the music, um, in the most important scene where he's going to, uh, where Franny visits him in jail and he's saying, this is the final moment. I really, I'm not going to sign the thing and I, I will go to my death if you let me, basically. Um, they're paying, they're playing the Agnus Day which of course is the Lamb of God, which if you're in a mass is the moment when the, it's consecrated. And Jesus of course is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so this is literally playing in the moment that he actually chooses to go to his own death. Again, identifying him as this Christ figure. But even just beyond the music, you also have these other images. For instance, Franny is really identified as kind of a Marian figure. Um, so there's a traditional form called the Stabat Mater, which is based on a, a medieval poem about the suffering of Mary as she sees Christ go to his death. And this is depicted also in, in visual art in these very kind of stereotypical, if you, if you Google it, you'll see kind of a woman who is weeping beyond herself. She's usually fallen on the ground. She's usually in the arms of another woman. And throughout the film, Franny is given this this position over and over again, especially after after Franz is is executed. So she's this this is yet again invoking the passion narrative as she is kind of this Marian figure, um, grieving as Christ goes to the cross. Uh, one other moment that I thought was really it was one of my favorite moments of the film, but reminded me of Christ in the cross praying the Psalms, is there's this beautiful scene where he's in prison and it's just seeing him go about his daily life, but he's voicing over prayers from the Psalms. 
And the thing that was really evocative to me about that scene is he's praying, the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. He's my, you know, praise the other Psalms about God being his fortress and his stronghold. And as he prays them, you feel as a viewer very much that this is true, that God is all of these things to him, that he is providing him. He is leading him by still waters. He is his stronghold. Even as his life seems very much to deny that reality and that he is in prison, he's he's not safe, he's not by still waters. But it's this beautiful picture of his total reliance on God. And I think I found that, that scene really moving because while it's perhaps... We may see characters, you know, have faith in a film. It's very rare to see that inside of them praying to God. And I thought, I've prayed these psalms. This is something I have done. And to see that depicted in film was really moving to me. But I think that was a reference to Christ praying on the cross, invoking the psalms. Um, So over and over again, you see him as uh, being identified as this Christ figure. And then, of course, he goes. And um, after the Agnus Dei, we wait for his execution and he's executed and immediately says as he's executed um the the film shuts off and we immediately see water which i think is meant to both identify the water that flowed from christ's side and also um to represent the waters of baptism that we are baptized into christ's death and we hope for his resurrection so this is something that the film is very obviously asking us to do. It's asking us to enter into this story as a passion narrative, and it's asking us to identify Franz as Jesus. And I think perhaps the point of this was to say, what does it look like? What does it mean to be faithful to Christ, to live the Christ story in an impossible time? Now, I love the passion narrative. I am a Christian, and I love to see it invoked in paintings and in movies and in stories. And I find the story of Franz Jagerstadter incredibly inspiring. But I actually found this combination a really troubling one because I felt like it neither did justice to the passion narrative and what the gospel truly proclaims to us, nor did it allow the story of Franz Jagerstadter and his wife, Franny, to really shine. So perhaps we should actually start with that second point, that it doesn't allow the historical person of Jagerstadter to really shine. Now, one of the things that many people have found kind of odd is how quiet he is throughout the movie. Um, He's depicted as this very conflicted, thoughtful, um, quiet man, and he doesn't really give justifications for why he's choosing not to do this. You don't hear him say, this is not a just war because they're exterminating the Jews. Also, you know, these various things are, are wrong. You don't hear him justifying why it is that he's chosen this. And that's particularly painful in his relationship with Franny, who, of course, is really bearing a great deal of the brunt um, of his choice as she chooses basically to raise their three daughters on her own. And she um, has to run the farm without him. And she has to have the grief of losing a husband. There's this feeling of, "Mm, come on, at least if you're going to die, tell your wife uh, why it is that you've done this. And I think that the reason that he doesn't do this, of course, is for this artistic reason, that he's making it a passion narrative. And so it's invoking that silence of Christ before the Sanhedrin, um, that he asks questions back. But the problem is, is that the actual Franz Jagerstadter was not like that at all. He had very vocal reasons for why he chose this. 
In his letters to his wife, he talked about it. And even just as a personality, and they kind of talk about this a bit in the movie, but he was known to be a bit of a brawler and uh, a difficult personality who was willing to get, he, he was arrested once for getting into a fight with the local police. Um, and in letters to his wife, he will say, send greetings to the local police who I look very forward to um, uh, having disagreements with. So he was not a quiet retiring man. And in his letters too, he's, he's, I mean, I thought the depiction of Christianity was beautiful in this film, uh, but it was a bit apophatic. It didn't say a lot about what he believed exactly and why what he was doing was a matter of faithfulness to Christ. Whereas in his actual letters to his wife, he's very clear about what he's doing and, and why he's doing this and why it's a matter of his faith. And even while he's in prison, he writes a collection of something, it's something like 40 things that all Christians should know. And he leads his prisoners in praying the rosary. And he's this very like explicitly faithful Catholic man who, who was able to speak articulately about why he was making the choice that he was. Which of course, in reality, actually allowed Franny to be much less of a passive character because she was a supporter of her husband. She knew that what he was doing was good and right and true. Um, so why does Malik silence Franz? And ultimately, I, I think he silences him because he wants it to fit into this, this passion narrative. He wants Franz to be the Christ who is silent before the Sanhedrin, who, who answers their accusations and questions. But the problem is, is that by kind of using this artistic form, uh, by planting that on top of this historical story, he actually ended up silencing the hero of the story. And and I can't help but feel that that does a disjustice to Franz Jagerstadter and even to Franny Jagerstadter. I thought to myself, if I were um, the wife or the sister of this man, and he had been vocal and had been articulate about his faith and why he believed what he did, and why this was the choice that he made, I would have felt very sad to watch a film which, while honoring my husband, kind of muted that reality of who he was. So I think that the use of the passion narrative kind of eclipsed the real person. And that, to me, is a sad thing, because if you're going to use an actual historical person or event, then you should probably have a reason for using it, and you should probably pay attention to telling that story faithfully and well. But not only did the passion narrative eclipse Franz, I actually thought um, by then projecting the passion narrative onto Franz, you ended up having a somewhat hopeless passion narrative. And this is what I mean. When Franz dies, um, you do have this expression of hope. Franny hopes uh, that she'll see him again, that they'll work together kind of reminds me of the end of um, Les Mis, and it says, we'll plow together in, in the fields of the Lord, that we'll make things new. And all of this is an expression of hope. But ultimately, because it is a historical story, Franz's life was ultimately hidden. He died, and there wasn't an immediate reaction to his life. And so when you combine that historical reality with the passion narrative, what you get is a passion narrative that ends in death. And that almost makes it as though this question of why does it matter to live a good life, um, even in the face of it not making a difference, it makes it as though death is somehow a good in itself. When ultimately, the passion narrative is the fact that Christ dies and then is risen from the dead. He actually conquers death by death. 
and and that this is the thing that energizes us. And and the early Christians, you know, you, you hear Paul and he says, if Christ did not raise, we are of all men to be pitied because it is no good to have a very good man who dies and is conquered by evil, right? But surely the very reason that Franz is able to make this sacrifice in real life is because he knows that if his life is hidden in Christ, who is the resurrected one, then his death is ultimately never a defeat. There's this beautiful passage in a, in a letter that he writes to Franny. Let me pull it up on my, on my computer. Where he says, Easter is coming, and if it should be God's will that we can never again in this world celebrate Easter together in our intimate family circle, we can still look ahead in the happy confidence that when the eternal Easter morning dawns, no one in our family circle shall be missing so we can then be permitted to rejoice together forever. So Franz made this choice knowing that his life and his death was hidden with Christ, that it would ultimately never be a defeat. But when you kind of mix these narratives, when you make Franz Jesus and you see the end of the story as being only his death, it comes out with this feeling that Christianity just likes the idea of a victim, that it likes the idea of someone dying, um, for nothing. And I think this is where it confuses martyrs with Christ figures. Martyrs can die because their lives are hidden in Christ, because they will be risen with Christ as well. But I felt this real sadness because I felt like I was meant to see Franz as Jesus, but I never saw Jesus on the other side of the grave. But then even as I criticized that, I, I have my own seeds of self-doubt. I wonder if perhaps we are meant, like in the box St. Matthew Passion, to stand at the tomb, waiting on Holy Saturday and hoping for resurrection. In the box St. Matthew Passion, which um, kind of initiates his journey into Berlin as it's playing on the train, uh, the box St. Matthew Passion ends with Christ dying, and we wait. It ends on Good Friday, and the service ends with his death, hoping, with kind of whispers of hope for his resurrection. And so maybe that is actually how the film is meant to be read. Maybe we are meant to say, yes, it's not quite satisfying because Franz is a martyr and not Christ himself. Franz's death is hidden in Christ, hidden in the hope of the resurrection. But we stand here at the tomb. And in one sense, I think that's kind of the answer to this question of why it matters to live a faithful life and to resist evil, even when it costs everything and doesn't seem to make a difference. We can live those kinds of lives because our hidden lives are hidden in Christ. And this was obviously something that Franz and Franny knew, that their life was hidden in Christ. And it was what gave them the strength to live these courageous and bold lives, to resist evil, even when it didn't seem to make a difference. It reminded me of this passage from 2 Corinthians 4, which reads, Even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his lights shine in our hearts, and give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. For we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the all-surpassing power of God and not from us. For we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, 
We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. And I think this is this beautiful picture of what happened through Franz Jagerstadter's life and really through every martyr's life, which is that Christ, uh, this beautiful passage where it says, um, the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Christ has revealed God's glory to us and in Christ's death is life. And so, but I, I love how he describes how this, this, this light can seem to be hidden. And that's kind of what we see in Franz, right? To those who can't see the glory of the gospel, that this, this death will not be the ultimate thing, that it's hidden in, in Christ's resurrection. It doesn't appear to be a light. It appears to be a dark story. It appears to be a hidden gospel. But to those who know the resurrection, in Fra Franz Jagerstatter's life, death, we see the life that will come. We see the resurrection that is promised to those who are faithful and to those to whom Christ has been faithful. So I guess here what we see is kind of an intermingling of both the story of Franz and the story that Terence Malick plays. And I think that part of the trouble with this film is that everyone loves Terence Malick, and I love Terence Malick, and the story of Franz Jagerstadter is an evidently good one. And so it's hard to kind of criticize these when they come together because they're both very good. But for me, I felt like because Franz was made out to be Christ instead of being one of Christ's martyrs, his story was kind of silenced and hidden and made smaller and quieter. And he was able to have less of a voice than he had in real life because he was kind of being made to fit this archetype in, a, in an artistic um, role or arc of the passion narrative. And because Franz was not allowed to just be a person following Christ, the passion narrative itself ended up being kind of disappointing because it made it seem as though the point of the gospel was Christ's death, when ultimately the thing that saves us is Christ's conquering of death through resurrection. So I would love personally to hear your thoughts on this. Did this make you comfortable? When you saw it, did it, did it comfort you? Was it beautiful? Or did it leave you like it left me, feeling a little bit chafing and at odds? So if you're listening to this episode, I would love to hear your thoughts. Um, send me an email, comment on Instagram or Twitter or on my website. I would love to know your thoughts. But I wanted to end today with a different thought and with a happier thought, which is the question, whose hidden life were we really meant to notice in this film? And the answer for me is undoubtedly Franny's life. You know, at the end of the day, if we think about this quote where it talks about the hidden life, the life that is unhistoric, Franz's life was historic, obviously, or else we wouldn't be watching a film about it. Um, his choice was one of resistance, was one that would be noted and talked about, and ultimately would be kind of a historic act. But the person who lived the quiet and hidden life, who rests in an unvisited tomb, to me is Franny. It is through her faithfulness, her faithfulness to her husband, to her family, to her own faith, even in the face of great suffering. She is the character throughout the movie who is willing to ask difficult questions of God, who wrestles and struggles, who weeps, 
um, she is Im- where he is impassive. She is the one who mo- who is moved, who cries, who tries, who loves. I think that Franny is every bit as much of a model to us of what it looks like to live the faithful and hidden life, um, as Franz is. She made me think of the old saying that it is hard to die for Christ, but it is harder still to live every monotonous day for him. And that is the thought that I would leave with you all this week, which is that as you live your faithful hidden life, as you wonder if making the right choices will make any difference, I want you to remember Franny and to remember that your hidden life is hidden in Christ and that we make the choices we do because we trust that in his resurrection there is a hope that will renew all things. And that that makes us brave, whether it is in the face of a monotonous life of faithfulness or if it is in the face of a martyr's death. I really encourage all of you to go see this film, if you can. Even though I have my quibbles with it, I still think it is profoundly beautiful. And I would love to hear your thoughts about it. I thought I would end this episode as I began it, um, reading this beautiful quote from Middlemarch to you and hoping um, that you will think of it and live well in your hidden life this week. For the growing good of the world is partly dependent on unhistoric acts, and that things are not so ill with you and me as they might have been, is half owing to the number who lived faithfully a hidden life and rest in unvisited tombs.